Hello, frazzled women. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. This is the virtual lounge for frazzled type A's, imposters, and overscheduling addicts. I am your host and salonniere, Kara Martin-Snyder, and very happy to be here today. Before we go any further, this is a good time to grab earmuffs if language is something you're sensitive to, because this podcast features two grown women having real conversation, and sometimes it's potty-mouthed, and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable or surprise you in any way, or the people around you. So earmuffs, earbuds, whatever you got to do, but just keep that in mind as you continue to listen. Because each episode, my job is to introduce you to modern women leaving their unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. And today I want you to meet Courtney Smith or Courtney E. Smith if you're on Twitter. Courtney and I seem to be living these parallel lives back in the early 2000s in New York when the Lower East Side was giving birth to all sorts of indie rock awesomeness um, and bands that we all, well, maybe not everybody, have come to know and love. But there was a lot of great music happening at the time, and while I was working in finance and a straight-up aficionado and really nerd um, about all things indie rock and rock and roll and making spreadsheets and playlists and things like that so I could figure out what my favorite albums would be at the end of the year. Courtney was actually living and working in the machine. She was programming and producing at MTV, and especially on MTV2, which was pulling in more indie rock at the time. To say I'm a teeny smidge fangirl would be a completely honest and fair statement. Courtney is the author of Record Collecting for Girls, Unleashing Your Inner Music Nerd One Album at a Time, which is that really sweet spot of how music intersects with people's biographies and their experiences and the stories behind music consumption, which is something that we'll touch on and has always kind of fascinated me. And she got that idea for the book partly when she was programming and producing for MTV and was really the connection point between all of the indie labels and MTV and really someone pivotal in help deciding what made it to video, what got airtime, and what we moved our attention to. So she was doing a job that in my early 20s, I would have quite honestly thought was the greatest job on the face of the universe. I know my 24, 25-year-old self is definitely salivating somewhere inside. But those are her creds or her accomplishments in terms of like resume stuff. But Courtney really brings such great perspective in this conversation to pivoting in your career and how different jobs morphed into different roles and how that was possible. And she also talks a lot about how to structure and organize a day if you are someone that's trying to do creative work. 
and what that can kind of look like and we talk about some of the benefits of doing that and how it works and how to integrate it and really so that people listening who are struggling with getting something creative done can maybe find something in this conversation that inspired them and begin to apply it in their own life. That always makes me super duper happy when I hear from people that they took an idea and they ran with it and what good things it did for them. So hopefully there's some nuggets in this conversation. I believe there will be. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. I This was such a fun conversation for me to have. One more thing before we dive into the interview with Courtney. I want to give a super duper huge shout out to my friend, fellow entrepreneur, and Courtney's friend, which is how this interview came to be, Miguel Banuelos of Salsa Pistolero. So weirdly enough, Miguel intersects with my love of music in my 20s, and for a long time, I knew Miguel through friends who worked in music as Miguel the Salsa Guy. I didn't even know he had a last name. I mean, I knew he had a last name, but I didn't know what it was because he was always the friend who brought homemade chips and salsa to every brunch party and certainly any party I ever invited him to. And today's interview was made possible by Miguel. And for those of you listening in New York City, I definitely am going to shamelessly and with so much love plug Miguel's salsa. It is something I have consumed over the years with a spoon directly into my mouth when there were no chips to be found. And sometimes Craig has caught me literally pouring some of the salsa into my mouth, like when there's only like that last little bit in the jar. And so if you have the opportunity, he's created this line of super fresh salsas to debunk the myth that there is no good Mexican food to be found in New York City. So if you have a chance, there's six varieties. They're in the refrigerator section, and you can find them at places like Miscellanea and Harry and Ida's and ABC Beer Company. So do check it out. And Miguel, thank you for connecting Courtney and I for this conversation. And voila, here's my interview with Courtney. Hey, Courtney, welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to finally talk to you because we share the common friend Miguel Banuelos. And for everyone listening, that's Miguel of Salsa Pistolero fame. And we have both known him for years now and somehow have never crossed paths. It's really strange that we never met somewhere in New York City. It's truly odd. I've also met your husband because of Miguel. That's right. Yeah, you know my my taller and edit more co-producing editing half. I enjoy him on Twitter. I recommend that everyone follows. He tweets some very nerdy <laughs> music stuff that is great. Yes. I Courtney, you would appreciate this cuz you roll with music nerds. When Craig and I were dating early on, Literally, we were out somewhere and this guy came and he was talking about how he was starting to write a book about the history of rock and roll. And Craig started just like asking him questions, like genuinely excited. And you could see like as it went on, like the guy had 
no answers for Craig or Craig was like, have you seen this book? Like with genuine, genuine excitement, like he wasn't trying to be a dick at all. And this guy was like, you could see him just like shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And at one point I heard two of the other guys like that knew Craig and were listening to this conversation whisper to each other. Craig has like a damn near encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll. And I swear that <laughs> moment just melted my heart a little bit. I get it. I tried to date a lot of music nerds in New York and several of them didn't pan out. Like if you don't have an opinion on the right things, then it can be a different opinion than me, but it's not very interesting to talk to you if you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Can you imagine how physicists must feel? <laughs> <laughs> alienated in their romantic life I guess that's why more women in STEM obviously exactly (laughs) physicists need to date too (laughs) and Courtney let's talk about some of the things you've been doing because I've already alluded to the fact that you're kind of music nerdy you are the author of record collecting for girls unleashing your inner music nerd one album at a time That was your first book. And then also these days, you're balancing that with being the weekend editor of Refinery29.com, which is a huge site for millennial women. For people listening who may not understand the difference necessarily between being an editor and being an author, maybe can you speak to that a little bit and and talk about how you kind of balance those two roles? Sure. Uh, It is like having two entirely different goals in those roles. So at Refinery, I'm the weekend editor, and it's a big job because it's a big website that gets a lot of traffic, but also because I am in charge of um, assigning stories across the spectrum. So it could be breaking news, whatever Trump's doing, world news, if there's a mass shooting, but it's also entertainment. So this weekend it was Sophia Ritchie denying she's dating Scott Disick and that those have to be handled with, you know, not equal importance, but in, in the correct order and manner and it's health and beauty and fashion, all of that stuff I'm watching and assigning all weekend long and kind of churning through what our readers want to see most and are going to be most serviced by while having a limited staff and limited resources. So it's totally different than what I'm doing in writing my next book, which I've started working on. And that I'm in the research phase of before I finish the book proposal. And it's totally, I've spent all of my time free range consuming other people's contents and coming up with bigger picture ideas. So it's writing in absolutely opposite ways. Um, For me, to keep those two things straight, I try to compartmentalize my week as much as I can. So because it's the weekend editor gig, I only have to work for Refinery about three days a week. And I do stuff on Thursday. And then starting on Friday afternoon, I look at the pitches, all the editors have sent to me for the weekend. And then I work Saturday and Sunday. And I kind of leave my email open on Monday morning for any corrections that come in or feedback on the stories. And then I take some time off on Tuesday and Wednesday, but I spend the rest of Monday working on my book. And I spend time on Tuesday and Wednesday doing it, 
and I spend time on Friday morning doing it. And I like it that way. I like it to be organized into pockets of time. So I can say, I know I'm doing this. Like this Wednesday, I am giving myself the whole day off and I've scheduled a massage and a manicotti and things, time to drink time to drink a mango margarita just because you do need to when you have a flexible schedule like this you do have to also schedule in time for yourself where you plan to be off and not just constantly working which is when you're freelance and working for yourself something that threatens to it creeps the workload creeps into your schedule yes and I think that's a really important point because I know for me, sometimes I have to be really mindful. Like literally I have to set timers or I have to like specifically go to my calendar and like my client calendar and like block out periods of time. How do you adhere to it? Because sometimes like when you're admittedly, like I might be working on something that's really exciting to me and really fun and really geeky. And it's easy to either go down the rabbit hole in the research or into the weeds and lose track of time, or just kind of blow off the boundary that you've maybe made for yourself? How do you stick to it? I agree. It can be really, really difficult to do that. I find a lot of times I will stack up other writing assignments that I've done, uh, or I feel a, a personal sense of urgency about writing something that maybe doesn't really exist. And I have to really look at why I feel that way and admit to myself that I'm avoiding doing something else. There's probably something (laughs) on my list I don't want to get to. Um, And I push that to the top of the list. Honestly, I just get it off the plate so that I can think more clearly about other things. I think the idea, what I learned in writing my first book was that creativity is not spontaneous. You can't just let it be spontaneous either because it will ruin your schedule. Uh, you have to learn to like flex your muscle whenever you have this time scheduled to do so. That doesn't mean you can't if you have a sudden burst of insight or whatever that you shouldn't stop to write it down. Or if you really feel in the mood to sit down and write, obviously I do it. But um, this whole idea that I should just wait for an idea to come to me or I should just wait to be in the mood to write – that's a falsity. That is not true. That's not how professional writers operate. You have to really tell yourself, okay, this morning between 10 and 12, I'm going to read this book, or I'm going to write this particular part of my book proposal, or I'm going to work on a sample chapter. And then from 12 to one, I'm going to take my dog for a walk. And then I'm going to, I really parcel it out so that I know what I'm expected to do every day. I don't set unrealistic expectations for myself. Like I don't set a word count to be at. I try to just feel good about the word count I have. So is word count an important metric to you? I mean, is it something you're watching or is it something? It helps me parcel things out. Uh, With my first book and with my second book, you have to put in the proposal for before the publisher buys it roughly how many words you think it's going to be. So they know what kind of book they're buying and that helps them figure out how to package it. So I found with the first book, I was thinking of each, it's an essay book. And I thought of each chapter as a standalone essay and I aimed for a 5,000 word count on each chapter. And that way, if I had so many chapters, it came out to the word count I'd sold. 
And that really worked for me. It helped me quantify it a bit better instead of just rambling or letting myself stop early when maybe I hadn't finished a thought because something was tough. I would push through and then you can edit down from that number. So I'm doing the same thing with this book. It's uh, a little different because the chapters will be more interwoven, but I find it also helps me tackle it better if I think of things as one long piece that I'm working on, one really big feature. And then you're, you find suddenly that you're knocking out piece by piece an entire book. It's a little less daunting. <laughs> right. Because I'm sure the idea of opening up Word and sitting down and like, I'm going to write a book this year sounds <laughs> yes, really so fucking I, scary. <laughs> 79,000 more to go. <laughs> it, it can overwhelm you. So I, I find it easier to break it into little chunks. And then suddenly you're more than halfway there. And you didn't even know that was happening. So what I'm hearing the word count is like this metric that you're sort of watching to make sure I it, it sounds like more like a compliance tool than an accountability tool. Definitely. And that's one way it relates to my editor uh, job at Refinery, because there I have production goals. And that's every job I've been at before. There's been some production goal, be it a rating or a number of things produced or a number of people that you want to look at something. So just having that something to quantify it when I'm working for myself in the same way helps me feel like a, a good worker bee. You know, it's something someone else had always set for me. And now I can set it for myself. So one of the things I've heard from people who have written bigger projects, books, things like that, that do use the word count, a lot of times I've heard people kind of whipping themselves into submission over it. What helps you stay, or or maybe you do kind of underneath it all have this like attachment, but it sounds like you're you're pretty cool about it. What helps you not beat yourself up in the moment, like when you're having a bad day? Uh, there's nothing. You just really have to some days admit that your writing is terrible, like you're just on the wrong project. And when that happens, I set that idea aside. And if I'm in the mood to keep going, then I will pick up a different idea and work on that instead. And if I'm not, then I pick up something that I've wanted to read someone else's work and try to find some inspiration in it. Um, but some days you're just not good at this. That's the other thing about uh, <laughs> writing. So for me, I know those days are going to come and I build it into my timeline of a big project like this. In addition to the word count, I set up where I should be like markers along the way. And it's not something that I use to beat myself up with if I'm not there. It's just, a, it's not a punishment. It's an acknowledgement. Just if I don't move a little faster or do a little more work this week, then I'm going to start falling behind and might not be able to deliver it on time. And so the options are for the next week, change the way I'm scheduling things and schedule myself to work more or prepare to tell a publisher that I'm not going to deliver something on time. And you know what? That's actually okay. They're kind of used to it. A lot of writers don't turn things in on time. It's not the end of the world. It's not great, but you know, I handed my first book in the day it was due at 10 a.m. And my editor was like, what is wrong with you? No one does this. 
It's like, oh, I thought everyone would do this. I thought that's what happened. It's like, okay, well, you're the most prompt person in the world. Like, oh, so there was wiggle room? I didn't know. <laughs> I love like all the, the unmentioned aspects of the process. Like, oh, right. Yeah, nobody turns anything in on time. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm not going to tell you that because then you would feel like you have all sorts of liberty to take all the time in the world. <laughs> but yeah, the surprise when I did that, I was like, oh, it actually isn't the end of the world if I'm a week late with something. I like that you had it in by 10 a.m. the day it was due. It was like it wasn't even end of business for you. You were like, I got this done. It's, it's ready. It's going to be in your box when you get there. <laughs> I had built in before that a week of proofreading for a final time, the whole book. And I like printed out the entire thing and rented a hotel room and just stayed in it with a red pen and <laughs> fixed everything and then went back and fixed it manually in my computer. And I was just, I wonder if anybody else does that. I've been meaning to ask some other people that had books come out that I'm friends with if they <laughs> did anything like that or if they just handed it in with a bunch of like random copy edit errors <laughs> I also didn't know it would be copy edited twice after that with by two different people and fact checked and I I mean I should have but we just didn't talk through that part of the process so I felt very you know like I should definitely make sure there are all the commas <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing and like and then it got checked twice so you did all this yeah. work and hold yourself up. I can only imagine like you're in this hotel room just feeling your hair get greasier, like pen going <laughs> in hand. <laughs> it was uh, not what any like crazy, the roguish authors of the 60s would have done. I'll tell you that. That's not how Howell went. <laughs> well, it makes me think of what was the podcast... Oh, I think I think it was Tim Ferriss interviewing Cheryl Strayed at South by and her talking about how she's such a binge writer. And sometimes because family and life gets in the way, she would just like literally rent a hotel room and like check out for a few days and sort of like confine herself to the room and like don't leave, just write. <laughs> I love that. Like, I think it's really necessary to do that sometimes. Sometimes it really grabs a hold of you and you don't want to stop writing. And those times are really exciting. It feels like you're on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> How do you balance that, though? Because I imagine, to your point, like that feels like a real high and you're just kind of obsessively going at it and who gives a shit about food or who gives a shit about sleep or exercise or any normal sort of self-care modalities in that moment? How do you then recenter? Well, those things don't, those kind of moments do not happen all that often. Uh, it, it would be the same as asking a, a trader at a hedge fund, when you get on a winning streak, how do you stop trading? Like you just do, you have a life, you have to put it down to eat sometimes or to leave your house you start to everybody's had that moment when they've been in their house too long and you're like I really have to not be here now <laughs> but, I mean honestly your your mind and your body take it over for you at some point um binge writing definitely is something that you will get into the mood especially when you're in a groove to do and you can lean into it for a while but 
cannot sustain that for more than a few days, as far as I, my experience indicates. Well, you sound pretty organized. So do you allow yourself to kind of have those like this weekend or, well, I guess weekends you're working most of the time, but do you ever have like a couple of weekdays and you're like, I just don't have anything else except for writing and I can write at whatever hour I want today and kind of go a little bit more freeform. I find that I don't want to do that often. Um, I like to write, I like to get into a schedule and stay in a schedule. Like it's, it becomes a habit to me, the same as, you know, going to work nine to five or whatever. So there aren't that many times where I'm like, I want to write at 11 p.m. Mostly I want to go to sleep. Even <laughs> at 7 p.m., I'm like, I'd like to be finished writing now and I'm going to watch some TV. I, I deserve this reward. <laughs> so no, I, I stay to a pretty, I keep, get myself into a schedule and I stay to it. So you really treat it like a work schedule, like people would go to Absolutely. the office nine to five. Absolutely, because I think it is. And it's the most important kind of work schedule to me because I'm working for myself. And I feel really proud of that. It's not something a lot of people get to do. So I'm invested in it. And I want it to go well. And I find that that works for me. And it might be because I worked at corporations for, you know, all of my early working life. But just having the structure and the schedule works for me. And that's a great point because you were living the corporate life. And maybe for the benefit of people listening, can you talk a little bit about what that corporate life looked like for you? Uh, it was corporate life light. light. <laughs> As someone who came from the finance world, yes, I, I get it. <laughs> so my first job out of college was at NTV. And we were in the digital department working on launching MTV2.com and a bunch of really cool, uh, really cool, what would I call them? Um, really cool companion digital shows, uh, digital voting shows and stuff like lots of encoding music videos and things like that. Um, and then that became working in the music programming department when they still had I guess they still do to a certain degree, had MTV.com separated from the channel. And eventually we got pulled into on-air programming. And so as my portfolio at MTV expanded, it was this weird mishmash of digital projects and on-air projects. So I was working on things like um, they launched a virtual world, the virtual Lower East Side. <laughs> 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 I did music programming for that and at the same time music programming for uh, MTV2's Subterranean. And I became the label manager for all, every indie label in the world, <laughs> which was, it sounds like it should just be in the 2000s. It should have just been indie rock. And it was a lot of that because I cared about it a lot. But it was also a bunch of indie hip hop and metal and everything. And it was sort of shepherding them through what the video submission process was and what the feedback to their videos were when they were submitted and where they were going to get played or if they weren't and why and negotiating on their behalf with the standards department for why things should or shouldn't be changed. Um, and with the legal department, we had, that's a whole story I can't even tell, but yeah, a lot <laughs> of that. 
Um, so it was really an interesting and odd job that was a big conglomeration of a lot of different random things, which is how MTV is. But the good news is um, it's we didn't have to be in the office until like 10 a.m., which often was stretched to 11 a.m. And um, the bad news was it meant a lot of nights out seeing bands, which was great in my 20s. And then it was exhausting. Yes. Yes, yes, because yes. We have shows to, we have to talk about this. 11 p.m. <laughs> right? Shows in New York don't start until 11 p.m. So it would be going home from work at 7, maybe going out to a bar at 9 and going to see a band at 11 and being out until 2 every night. So that's why, you know, work started at like 11 a.m. Yeah. Everyone that I knew that worked in music, I thought it was hilarious. Like I, you know, 9 a.m. was sort of questionably late I mean when I was in New York 9 a.m was like when most people started and I was in finance at this point um you know probably into I'm trying to think I I probably went to InSound InSound was my first job when I left traditional finance and doing troubled debt restructuring and bankruptcy and I wanted to go from like totally screwed up situations to partially screwed up situations because they were startups (laughs) right like you weren't inheriting somebody else's broken burning fuselage of a mess that just fell into your lap but instead it was just like hey yeah so you're the controller and we have no controls can you help (laughs) (laughs) at least it seemed tamer and I wouldn't have to travel every single week but I'm laughing because we were probably living parallel lives at this point like here I was sort of the accountant and controller, but I say music nerd, but like the music nerd in me salutes the music nerd in you, knowing that you are much more studied and, and <laughs> around this topic. But I have to laugh because, you know, your day sounded very similar to mine, although I'm, I'm quite impressed. I never went home after work, right? Like I went to work all day and then a lot of times I had a membership to MoMA So I would go see a film and then by then everybody else I knew was getting out of work and starting to do things and, you know, maybe go catch the opening set somewhere and would just go from like the movies, grab some food, probably a slice of pizza at that point in my life, and then just start heading to shows for the night on the Lower East Side. I'm going to guess that you lived in Brooklyn at that time then. No, I was was still on... I was still on the Lower East Side, so I lived on Attorney Street for years. Lazy then, because I lived in Chelsea, and I was like, guys, I'm going home. I'll see you tonight. (laughs) I I think I knew that if I went home, I probably wouldn't come back out. Like, I'd start playing some music at home, I'd throw, you know, I'd grab a book, and then game over. Oh, I liked it, because I would make myself walk down to the Lower East Side side and it was always like a nice bit of exercise but at a time of day when it wasn't too hot and it was never like uncold in the winter so it didn't matter if it was night um yeah it was a moment of zen nice so that's how you got out during <laughs> like you were outside <laughs> maybe not maybe not in daylight but you were like moving around getting some questionably fresh new york air in you <laughs> yeah, just clearing my mind within that walk. 
How did it feel for you? Because as a fan, I was excited and I was, you know, I was going to Mercury Lounge's box office every Saturday with a list of which of my friends wanted tickets to which show and just like the point (laughs) person for all of that. And like going to shows was a big part of your job. Does that change how you enjoy it? Yes, definitely. When I started, I was enthralled with it and just like, how can this even be a job? This is amazing. And I had interned in college for a guy in Dallas with like the local Sunday night indie show on the alternative station. And because of him, I really became a nerd. Uh, he, I wrote his playlist up every week that he emailed to all the record reps. And then we, I've convinced him to post them on the internet and he would tell me who the artist was and I was supposed to know the song and I was supposed to be listening whenever he did all the breaks, but he also wanted the record label on there. And after the second time I had to ask what label Jesus and Mary Jane was on, I just, he started giving me these looks (laughs) that was like, you really need to be memorizing this. So I was surprised to find, uh, that as I became the person that was encoding music videos to go on MTV.com in the early days of my career, that it was really helpful to have all of that information because of all the metadata we had to input around the videos. So I already had a lot of this memorized. I didn't have to open up the database of music videos and look it up. I was like, nope, I already know. I already know who directed this because I looked at the sheet when it came in. I already know everything. (laughs) I can just type it in. Um, And Eventually, I think more whenever I became the label rep that had to talk to all these people and negotiate about things all the time, that's when it became less of a fan thing and more of a job. Like, you have to be professional about it. And it's different because it's a job where people are literally paying you to tell them your opinion on music and then listening and putting an incredible amount of money behind marketing those bands, um, giving them airtime on television. And it's, I look back now and I'm just like, it's shocking how much power I had over the music scene in my twenties. It's ridiculous. Like it's stupid. Um, why were they listening to me? Uh, but it was also fun Sometimes and sometimes you got to meet people who were amazing and so much fun to work with and just the best and it made you want to do even more to help them and sometimes you met people that just broke your heart who were just awful and it made it hard to listen to their music. So it's hard to separate personal from passion in a job like that and to a degree they don't want you to like your passion is we have uh, music meetings at MTV and uh, music video meetings where every Friday they would, we screened every single video that was submitted, a whole room of people, a conference room full of people. And I mean, everything from like the weirdest metal videos to the Britney Spears video. And we didn't watch everything all the way through. Usually within one minute of a video, you get the sense of it, unless it's something people are really excited for, or it's really out there. Yep. But the com- the running commentary in that room was one of my favorite things. <laughs> it was so funny. And then on Monday after that were the music meetings, which I called MTV Debate Club. <laughs> and everybody who was a label rep came in 
with their statistics that the label had sent them on how things were performing, where they'd sold, and we looked at a huge packet of information that was what was being played on radio in major markets and what the call-out research about songs was, what the online statistics were. Like back in the day, it was how many MySpace plays something had, and then that evolved into what the Apple music campaign for it was going to be. And it was so much fun to have those arguments with people about things, mundane things to things that you're really passionate about. So I have to ask Courtney, what were the demographics in the room? Like, were you working with other women at that point? Or was MTV still kind of a boys club? Definitely not a boys club. When I started the executive VP of music was a guy and he was actually really great dude. But very into like we could have hours long conversations about Sonic Youth and he's the reason that the White Stripes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs were on the movie awards and like he loved that stuff but he also knew that you had to play your Britney Spears and your Ludacris and what have you um so it was very businesslike and and he left in about 2005 and a woman who was already in the department took over and so for most of the time I was there and working in music programming, a woman was in charge of the department. A woman was the second in command of the department. My boss was a man, but our whole, we were talent and programming mixed together. And almost the entire talent team was women. Uh, the programming team, the upper management were mostly men and then it was really mixed below that at the coordinator and assistant level but the men were not white dudes like the two most prevalent <laughs> guys were the guy with the office across the hall from me who programmed MTV jams but a man and he was I mean he has since come out but he was not out at the time but he was the dude that turned us all on to Kanye West way before we knew who that was and he was the we would get into fights about um what terrible things I thought he was making jam of the week on MTV jams um <laughs> and the his kind of second who did also hip-hop programming but was the indie label rep before me was a guy named Tuma Bassa who is now the uh the hip hop programmer at Spotify. He does the rap caviar playlist, which is the most influential playlist in the world. And he was the best. And he would bring me into all of his indie rock meetings because he was a really gigantically tall black guy originally from Africa who went to the University of Iowa and loved hip hop and did not understand what sub pop was at all. So he was like, <laughs> Courtney, why don't you just come to this meeting with me? You can talk to them. <laughs> So I did. And that that's the reason I got his job whenever he got a promotion. He was just like, no, you have to give it to her. <laughs> um, but I, I really loved working with those people. It was a really eclectic group of people. So you said something earlier that, that stuck with me. And now definitely hearing you, you riff there for a minute. It makes me want to ask this question even more. Why were people listening to you? You like you kind of talked about like who would give a 20 something this much sway and opinion on a major I mean a global channel, a global product. Why were they listening to you? Um because I was right about a few big things. Like they let me take a few big shots. Um the first one was not something I was passionate about, but it was Fallout Boy. 
uh, <laughs> I, I have read, yeah. I've read most of your book. I read it really quickly this weekend. So I, <laughs> you're definitely Fallout Boy is a double edged sword for you. Yeah, like I don't like that kind of music. I get what they're going for, but I was seeing them react on the digital side because I was working a lot on digital for NTVU, our college network. And I was just like, these guys have something. The videos are really pretty interesting. What they're going for is interesting. Like, we should get on board with this just as a network. It's not my thing, but we should be looking at this and doing stuff with them and we did and it blew up it was mad it was so much bigger than mtv well mtv2 at the time was where they really went but they quickly went on to mtv and bigger than their label they had just done some they ended up having to do a deal i think with warner via fueled by ramen or island via fueled by ramen after that because it was much bigger than everybody thought it was going to be that next album of theirs so being right about that got people to listen to me. And my next one was Death Cab for Cutie. And it was the Transatlanticism album. Oh, I was just wow. like, yeah. that was guys, a good- we have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, They made their first video uh, for a movie script ending a few years before that, not long before that. And it was, you know, it was a forgettable video, but I was insisted i wasn't programming subterranean at the time but i insisted that we play it because it was death cab like we should be paying attention to them and not playing other dumb crap and um so i got transatlanticism six months before it came out and i was like we need to do everything with them and we did and it did really well uh in a, a limited way we did a lot on mtvu with them so with the next album they really cemented their relationship. And I remember one meeting in particular with the guy who at the time was the president of MTVU and then became the president of MTV not long after saying, okay, if we really bet everything on death cab, these guys are going to break. Right. And the woman who was in charge of the music department looking at me and going, they are right. (laughs) Please say yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. But are we, are you guys really looking to me to tell you that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Surreal moment. <laughs> and how much of it for you, Courtney, is intuition versus you were also getting this like heavy stream of analytics, right? Like you were watching things and getting the intuitive hit in your Friday screenings. And then on Monday, like getting hit with the, the follow-up wave of data, analytics, metrics. How do you balance both those halves? Uh, I don't know how to tell you. I don't do it consciously. Like it all comes together subconsciously for me. I don't know what it is, but my brain just works that way. I can look at data and I can look at a band's history and I can listen to the music and I can tell you if it's going to be something that's worth putting a lot of money behind and have mass appeal or if it's not. And if it's not, that doesn't mean that you don't support it. It's just like you market it appropriately. I I really couldn't tell you how I do that. I It's just the way that my head works. I can appreciate that, especially when it's an internal process. I guess one of the questions to that is that kind of intuition, right? Because that's what it is. Like you are running some 
algorithm below the surface in your, right. <laughs> in your mind that's sort of doing this calculation for you. How do you have the space to get the memo, if you know what I mean? Um, gosh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just so used to running that way. Like even my current job is that way. I intake a ton of news. I look at everything that's going on, all of it. And I just have to filter through what are the right things? What are the right hits? What's the right mix? You know, like for every piece of gossip I do, I want to find something that's deeper and has more meaning as well. That I, I don't have a number goal. I don't quantify it in the same way that I do when I'm writing. And it's the same with music. Like you can quantify what's successful uh, based on press, based on sales, based on money and figure out if you were right and it was a good use of your time to invest in something or not. But there are other cases where it's a small band, you've written a small piece, whatever, that doesn't mean there isn't an audience for it and that it wasn't meaningful to those people. It's just you have to learn the marketing side of everything, I guess. If that makes any sense, you have to learn yeah. like how to filter through what to invest in and to what degree in terms of writing, in terms of, of A&Ring, I guess, you know, you have to run it through a filter before you take it to the next step, which is the marketing and putting in the work, putting in the man hours. So thinking about that, then you have always had this ability to take in mass quantities of data and information whether it be music, whether it be sort of how that music is going to fit into the ecosphere as a whole, or like these days, you know, more in, in the realm of taking in massive quantities of news. Mm -hmm. That number or like that amount of information available that we have to take in and then filter is going up. How do you not fry your brain at the end of a day? Oh. I take days off too. <laughs> Tomorrow I will not look at Twitter or my news feed or anything at all. There'll be stuff that I just don't know and I will catch up with it on Thursday or Friday. But I give myself a chance to not think about it as well. Do you feel a pressure to catch up? And and I want to preface this question with an OCD sort of tendency of mine. You know, we've established that I was in finance and that I was a music nerd. And back in the day, every Tuesday, when, when it was New Music Tuesday, I mm -hmm. would get a list of everything that came out, and then I would build a playlist for the week in Rhapsody at the time, because that was, that was what I had at work, and I had, you know, 50 yeah. hours a week to sit there and listen to music. So I would queue it up so that I could sort of filter down into, like, the five or ten albums that I really dug that week. And then would cross-reference that to, do you remember the John Beach Board list of all the shows in oh, New York yes. before Oh My yes. Rockness came out? Yes, that was so necessary. So yeah, you had to have it because then you knew what was going on. And then I would cross-reference the albums that I liked to who was playing. So coming from that perspective, like how, how do you... Or let me, let me back up and ask it this way. 
I was kind of a freak about like I was afraid I was going to miss some album that would change my life, blow my mind, make my brain melt out of the side of my ear, or I would miss the show because I didn't listen to it in time. Like there was always a feeling of trying to catch up. How do you manage that if you experience it? It sounds like you have a serious FOMO problem. (laughs) I did. I did. Uh, Now I don't stress. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't stress about that. Um, I never really did. It's I go to so much and try to do so much that I know I'm fully extended. So if there's something I miss out on, that's okay. They'll probably be, if it's important in news, there'll be a continuing story. If it's something amazing in music, someone will tell me about it and I will see it. Like it will come together. Um I'm not missing out forever because I missed out once. Uh, As far as news goes, I don't feel the need to keep up with every single thing that happens, just the stuff that's a continuing narrative. Because with our government right now, it's there's too much, it's too overwhelming. You can't keep up with everything. A lot of it floats past me through my various social feeds and my, I use a tool called Feedly to uh, sort through a lot of news outlets and I use my, my Apple newsstand feature pretty regularly. I set up notifications. So if any major headlines happen, I see them and I don't have to like they're pushed to me. So I don't have to constantly be looking and in music. I've gotten so much more relaxed about it. I just have a running list. I use Metacritic to look at the albums that came out this year and what's ranked. And I, there's so much all the time. I just listen to stuff when I can. And sometimes things get pushed up the list because a lot of people are talking about them. And sometimes they get pushed down. But I find that in the last decade, my relationship to the way I've listened to music and to albums has changed completely. It used to be my CD Walkman and walking around New York and listening to <laughs> albums over and over or listening to mixed CDs over and over. And I knew them back and forth. And it Felt like there was less to consume, although I don't think there was. Even a decade ago, there wasn't. Um, but it felt like I just knew things more intimately, and I had a more intimate relationship with artists. And now it's 100% Spotify, and I listen to stuff while I'm doing something mostly. There's so little time that I'm listening with my earbuds in and having that same sort of experience where I'm doing nothing but focusing on the music. So I don't have as many albums anymore that I connect with in such a passionate way. Uh, They definitely break through. Father John Misty is one of those people for me. Like, it's impossible to not feel passionate about his music to me. Um, But there are a lot of artists that I used to care about a lot. And now I'm just like, I don't know why you even made this album. (laughs) And I know that's something that happens as we get older as well. Like, we start to cling to the music of our youth and care less about new things like I can really I cannot be bothered to care about Mac DeMarco I'm sure he's great but I just do not give give a crap it's funny he's one of the few that have actually made it onto the radar for me so it's funny that you mentioned that like yeah I've I've heard this before (laughs) right he's a big deal and I'm like it's fine but it's like that can be yours young people I don't need any of that (laughs) so (laughs) I mean, it just it's the way your your mind works. I think as you get older, it's just not what you want anymore to be constantly consuming and up on the newest thing. Does your consumption change with where you are in the world? Because you 
you're in Dallas these days, but you're mm-hmm. back and forth to New York a good bit still, right? Uh, I only go back about once or twice a year. Okay. Um, I I didn't notice. Well, actually, that's not true. I, it did. I walked a lot the last time I was in New York, which was just a few months ago. I walked with my headphones on a lot, and it was very much the way that I used to consume my CDs. Um, so, yes. And in Dallas, in the car, I usually listen to um, NPR station that plays music there, and they've actually turned me on to some good things. And I was just like, oh, geez. I'm that person now. And when I'm, I spend an hour a day walking my dog. We have a really lovely nature trail right behind where we live. And I listen to podcasts. Honestly, I did. I used to, if I were younger, I would spend all that time listening to music, but now I spend it listening to podcasts, (laughs) political podcasts. mostly. Yeah. I'm feeling that same shift. You can't see me because we're recording voice only. But as you were talking, I was like, yeah, that's, that's actually the shift I've been making as well. Just more ideas, more conversation, more podcasts, that kind of thing. And I I find that gives me more inspiration where music was always, I, I, Saying it was part of the background isn't completely right. It was more like the soundtrack to certain activities or parts of my life. Like, for me, music is, um, I might not be able to tell you the year or the month that something came out, but I could tell you the first time I heard it, the time of day, and then, like, things get categorized by time of day, time of year. Like, things are very cyclical and seasonal for me. Like, yes. You know, listening to the clientele is perfect for a cool summer morning or a really dark <laughs> rainy day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a fall, a cold fall day for me. Yes, but, like, yeah. yes, fall or like spring, those like perimeters between the seasons changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I also have noticed, so I am not married and I use Bumble and all the guys who are like, I love live music. I'm just like, well, then I don't want to date you. I've seen every band, all of them. I used to go out five <laughs> nights a week. What I want to do now is binge watch some stuff on Netflix. I have to laugh because like the rule in this house and I was like, I'd like to say it's because I turned 40, but the reality is this has been happening probably since my mid thirties where Craig who still like love seeing music and I, I still love seeing music, but the question, the, the algorithm that always decides whether we go or not, it's like, what time is the set time? No, really? Yeah. What time is the set time? Like, can you find out? Like, cause I don't want to just rely on what the published set time is. And then will there be seats? Yeah. And then, and then now that we're going to be living outside of the city, it's like, well, okay, then we also have to factor in the drive. Can I like, can I get some other meetings that day to make it worthwhile to kind of drive in and make that commute into the city <laughs> to see something? And then I think like, maybe this question's higher up in the ranking, but there's also Craig and I have this sort of, this is awful to say, like geriatric hit list. Like all the people <laughs> that are getting upwards in age that I haven't seen yet, that it's like, wow, oh, I, I better make sure to see this person. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should have a conversation after this about what's on your list, and I can maybe knock a few off for you that you shouldn't see. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I would welcome your opinion on these things. I found so after my after I quit my life at MTV in New York and moved to LA and wrote my book, then I moved to San Antonio for a little bit. And I found myself going out a lot to, um, there are a lot of the historic, uh, country music clubs there, like floors country store, which is an O Willie Nelson song and cowboys, which is where the final date of the sex pistols U S tour was (laughs) (laughs) where they like lost it and the audience spit on them. Um, a lot of those places to see music and seeing a lot of Texas country, which was really interesting to me. So a lot of these places are um, either gigantic, like they have a dance floor and lots of tables around and you sit at a table and drink beer and you dance if you want to. And then there's a bull riding ring next to it. Or it's a tiny, basically barbecue or Mexican food joint that has a stage. So you can eat some barbecue and sit at a table with your whole family. It's a family atmosphere and everybody is like done by 10 p.m. All the bands are. So it's a very different experience. Oh, amazing. But, yeah. <laughs> Taco really- seats in early set times. That's amazing. Yeah, it's the dream basically, except it's Texas country. So I don't know if the music would be for you, but it was really cool to see a lot of these people. And I would just go to random shows, like not having any idea who the artists were to see what they were up to and what they were doing. And these people make a living just playing in Texas, just touring Texas cities. And that's amazing to me. Did you know Billboard has a Texas music chart? Cause they do. <laughs> no, just, just Texans that play ran and it's not all country music that that's everything texas <laughs> it, it was really kind of fun to see but it was something totally and completely different that's mind-blowing to me i mean i've always recognized that texas is kind of its own animal in a lot of ways but the fact that they have their own specific billboard chart like just mm-hmm. texas and it's there are this there amalgamation of whatever's going on there. It's not even like specific to country. Yeah. It, there are artists whose credentials that they'll put as why you should come see me. I was number one on the Texas music billboard chart. Okay. <laughs> wow. Wow. So Courtney, talk about how did you go from MTV in New York to LA to Texas? I went and to become an author like how did you make this leap (laughs) I went from New York to LA to San Antonio back to New York back to Texas um and it's just a convoluted kind of story when I left MTV I left because I knew the only road to promotion would be starting to do major label stuff and you know, working with bigger bands. And I just wasn't interested. I really didn't want to. And once I admitted that to myself, I told them that I wanted to resign and I was going to wait for the layoffs that they were having that year. And they were going to be huge layoffs. So it was fine with everybody that I did that. Um, And I quit my whole life. It was so hard for me to separate my career from my lifestyle, from who I was Because as we talked about, it was a job that they really wanted you to be passionate about. Like that's what made, you know, you a tastemaker, I guess. I hate that word, but 
um i love everyone who is the tastemaker is usually like cringes with that title it's such a cheesy thing to call oneself it's just like (laughs) hey did you know that i'm important because it's dumb it's just so people think i'm cool (laughs) yeah some people think i'm cool they're all in bands though you wouldn't know them no um so i yeah and and my day was going out all night like that was a part of the job as well you had to be out and talk to people and be seen as well as see all these bands so I felt like I had to move away to understand if I was sick of doing this job or sick of living in New York or what my deal even was so I went to LA because it was you know it's like to me a step down city a chiller version of New York with better weather. Yes. Um, and also a bit more familiar because I'd grown up in Texas. And so their whole landscape and car culture was just like a little easier for me. And of course, my friends out there were great. And I really don't like LA. I can't live there. It's great to visit. But man, will I not live there again? Amen. Um, <laughs> You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> But I'd already had the idea for my first book while I was working at MTV because my boss had given me uh, the companion blog, which was a vertical website for Subterranean. It was just like, um, we're going to make you the blogger for this. You just have to put up three posts a day, write whatever you want to. And nobody checked anything that I wrote. Nobody seemed to care about (laughs) what I wrote. It was just do whatever. So I did. And I ended up like also coordinating the on-air promos for it. So little crawls would run that told people to go read the blog who watched the show. And then I started emailing people from Pitchfork whenever I dug out old 120 minutes performances and put them up. So I would get like the old, uh, I know I put up pavement first and everybody lost their minds and just like (laughs) old videos that for whatever reason, nobody bothered to get out of the, MTV library and digitize. I started doing randomly whenever I had time. And after a few months, they made everybody who was doing one of these vertical sites go to a training session on, you know, how to do a better job, how to blog, whatever. And I get there and it's in a theater in the Viacom building. And the woman who's talking to us is talking about why my blog does so well and gets a lot of traffic. And I was like, wait a minute, it does what now? Nobody had told me anything (laughs) about any of the traffic or anything that was happening. And she's explaining to them, um, I guess on my behalf, exactly what about the format of the blog worked so well and blah, 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 with no like idea that the traffic is basically all coming from pitchfork, I'm sure. And (laughs) I was like, wait, if I'm doing such a good job, why do I have to be in this training session? Can I just leave? <laughs> but all that writing on a daily basis kind of got me back into the habit of doing it. I hadn't really been writing since college. And I started to have a bigger idea for this book. And so I decided to write it when I was in LA. And I spent probably the first three months that I was there, just going to the library and checking out a bunch of books and reading them. And I read an absurd and almost obscene number of books on the Beatles and the Stones because that chapter was my um, sample chapter that I submitted for <laughs> my book proposal. And I know everything about those bands now, <laughs> really. <laughs> Again, I'd be scared to like see you, Craig and Miguel all at the same <laughs> table geeking out. 
Like my face <laughs> might melt. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of things that Miguel and I disagree on. The primary one being if Blur or Oasis are the more important <laughs> relevant British band. <laughs> yeah, them there fighting words with that that man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the blog helped you get back into the habit of writing, but where did the idea for record collecting for girls come from? And and what was what was your hope? Like what did you want women reading this to to come away with? I really love those kind of music essay books, like the Klosterman books and Rob Tenenbaum's books. I like books that combine um, your feelings and your experiences with music. I really love reading those. And I wanted to write one because it occurred to me that there were no women writing those books. And I don't understand why there should be. There should be a lot more. Um, So... I did. I forgot what there was a couple of, there were a couple of chapters that were the very first ideas, but I don't remember what they were. Definitely the Beatles and the Stones chapter, because I love telling people the story in that chapter about the guy when I was in college who was flirting with all these girls at a show in Dallas. And I asked him what his best pickup line was. And he said, Oh, I just asked them if they like the Beatles or the Stones. And I was like, why what is what happens what's the right answer and he was like well if she likes the Beatles you know she has good taste in music whatever that's fine if she likes the Stones you know you can take her home and fuck her and I was like I don't think that's how that works dude (laughs) and you have to wonder what what data he had been collecting on this question yeah for how long Uh Uh-huh. I'm very curious. It made me want to, like, insert myself into every time I saw him chatting up a girl and just be like, hey, do you know what this guy thinks? See, let's see if we can start a music debate here (laughs) instead of (laughs) pick up line. (laughs) But it it got women talking, right? It inevitably did, because everyone has an opinion on that subject. And if they don't, well, then you know you should walk away from them. And what made me laugh, Courtney, as I was reading your book, and I realized I was so guilty of it myself. And I guess that like how judgmental I was in my 20s when I was dating in New York. (laughs) But like, wanting to see people's record collection or CD collection or what they had been playing on their phone. Like, well, I guess it wasn't a phone at that point. It was more just an iPod. iPod. Did you not have that experience? I had multiple guys take my iPod away from me and look through what was on it. I definitely have had that experience, but I got really savvy because I realized what I was doing. I was sort of looking for the psychology around like, who the hell would listen to this? and Or what does this say? <laughs> and then I also realized my really eclectic taste and like, and I mean, I would go down like random rabbit holes like ghetto tech for example who (laughs) listens to ghetto tech and who would think someone that's like pretty much a feminist would listen to ghetto tech but it's like the it's like the pure comedy of like fast beats and lots of bass right like so it it filled a particular need but it was never like the literal and I was like oh my god if someone looks at my ipod they're gonna think I'm an absolutely batshit crazy person (laughs) <laughs> so I think I got really savvy and like, and went into survivalist mode where it was like, we're going to be dating a long time before you're going through my iPod. Like I probably let someone go through my checkbook faster than my iPod oh, in those wow. years. 
I don't know. I, yeah, I just like the idea of voicey writing like that. I did at the time. And so that was what I wanted to write. And I did. It was, I opened a lot of doors with my MTV credentials. That's definitely how I got a book deal that I had all of that experience behind me because I did not have a lot of writing experience behind me. But they're great stories as well. Like, to anyone listening, read Courtney's book. If you like music at all, read her book. It's it's a fun, it's a fun trip. I like to imagine people arguing back to my book, because I definitely have done that with other people's writing. Like, you, I don't want you to agree with me necessarily. If you do, that's cool. You can, we can like the same things, and I get it. And if you don't, that's fun, too. Like, it's actually kind of great if you don't. So it's not all a... a likable point of view I think a lot of people disagree with my point of view on the Smiths but that's fine I accept that yeah I mean I I think you really step up and you you seem very resolute in your opinions you're like these are my opinions and yeah I I mean I think there were definitely points where I was like I don't know that I agree with this or yeah but but I'm not trying to make friends I'm just trying to write an entertaining (laughs) book (laughs) and that you did that you did. And I have to I have to ask this question because it it comes from a place like, you know, I admitted earlier my ridiculous kind of overstudying method of like consuming music. And part of that for me, I think was driven by I have no musical talent that I know of. Like, I've tried to play guitar. I have took piano lessons for a bit as a kid. Like, my mom was someone who could take her electric guitar out of my grandmother's attic one Christmas, and within, you know, under 10 minutes of, like, tuning it up could be, like, playing a Led Zeppelin song by ear. (laughs) I never, ever, ever had that talent whatsoever. (laughs) So, like, I always, I think for me in my 20s and, you know, therapists listening can make their own judgments on why I did this. But for me, I look back and think that there was definitely some imposter syndrome going on. Like, if I couldn't, (laughs) if I couldn't fit in with the people that I, I had around me, these creatives that were doing, like, making all this music in a time when New York was just exploding with music in the early 2000s it was coming it was to help me stave off imposter syndrome yeah have there been points where you felt like an imposter no because I've never um tried to be a musician I can play I took piano lessons for about seven years and then in school for another I guess six years, I played percussion. So, you know, drums, timpani, any percussion instrument you can think of. I'm awesome at tamarine. (laughs) (laughs) I can do a hand clap. That's about as as percussive as I get. I can do all of them. Bells, chimes, like marimba, anything. Oh, marimba. (laughs) Yeah, I love the yarn sticks. Anything with a keyboard in front of it, I could play. Um... But I didn't love it. Like, I don't love playing. And I can read music, but I could never play by ear. And the idea of writing a song, I'm sure there's a way that someone does that, but I would have to work really hard at it. And I think 
a lot of people that are professional musicians, it's just something that opens up for them. Um, I never wanted to be a musician, but I always loved music and I've always been a big appreciator of it. I mean, I started making mixtapes when I was about eight. So I, I think there's a role for everyone, especially in a big, like we were in New York during a huge creative scene where there was a massive, you know, boom of local bands who became huge. Um, Yes. There's a role for everyone. You don't have to be the person on the stage to be important there. Um, You can be the person in the audience and that's an important role too. You're not an imposter. You're an appreciator. That's a good point, that it's just a different role. Yeah, like everybody can't be the person who's the lead singer. Somebody has to be the bass player, but that doesn't mean the bass player is an imposter. They're an important part of the band. And it's funny, I became the controller, the person who pays the people at labels and sells Which music. So, so many <laughs> bands would say is the most important part of the major label system. Hilarious. So... You you didn't know that like it doesn't sound like that you ever really aspired to be a musician like it was it was something you did for fun did you know you were going to be a writer no not at all um, I thought when I graduated from college I mean from high school I chose the college that I went to because I thought I was going to be a research scientist and they were one of the only schools in the state that had an interdisciplinary program for cognitive science which is what I was interested in, which was like a blend of neuroscience and artificial technology. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I liked all of it except for the computer programming part. I found that to be so boring, but it's also so integral to the whole idea that there was no getting around it. So once I accepted I wasn't going to do that, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) Who am I? What am I doing? Why am I in this really expensive college? So, yeah, I also was a big fan of online already. This was the late 90s, and I was a huge into AOL chat rooms. I loved them. I loved communicating that way. Um, I found it really entertaining, and the idea of meeting all these people who lived in different places who I didn't know was interesting to me. But AOL was really expensive at the time. You had to pay by the hour. Yes. So I was like, I'm going to need a a way to around this. And I found out that chat hosts uh, got free accounts. So I became a chat host for the women's entertainment network and the style network and a few other places and eventually MTV. And I just conned those people into letting me come to New York for an internship. And I kept interning for them. MTV used to have a local site. So I wrote reviews about Dallas and Houston music for it and kept coming back every year for internships and got someone who had um, hired me to be an intern to hire me as a production assistant when I graduated. And that was your that was your way in, like this. Yeah, <laughs> I love that it all started from this really practical place of what do I need to do to get more AOL time for free. <laughs> <laughs> that was the motivation. Which makes us sound like a hundred years old when we say that, but, (laughs) and we're not listeners. We're not a (laughs) hundred. Super young, not a millennial, but you know, very close. (laughs) 
That is such an amazing story, Courtney. It's really. just random. <laughs> it's really random. <laughs> and I, I want to like, I want to thank you for sharing so many parts of this story and how you juggle these things and how you got from place to place. Because I think it's so important for women, especially women listening, who feel like, I know I want to do something different, but I don't know how to do this. And you've made all of these like pivots in your life and really opened up a lot of detail around them. So thank you. Of course, my pleasure. And Courtney, I want to ask you some of the champagne questions. And I call them the champagne questions because these are quasi-bubble-like questions that I like to serve every guest that comes by the salon. And I, I want to hear your opinions on, on different things. And I, I know we talked a lot earlier on about how you organize and manage what you need to get done on a day-to-day basis. But I think one thing we didn't necessarily get to, and if there's anything you want to add, feel free, what helps you set your priorities and kind of what does that process look like in terms of action? Um, well, I have a pretty hard schedule with refinery with that job. I know what the expectations are. And so since they pay me, I set their priorities first right now. So I'm, you know, spoken for during certain hours on Thursday and Friday, and I'm spoken for on Saturday and Sunday, and I just bake that into what I'm going to do. And beyond that, until I sell my second book, that's something I'm pursuing because I like it. So all last year, I really felt like I had a hard time managing the time I spent writing freelance stuff and the time I spent working on my book. And I kept doing freelance projects because I wanted to keep my name out there and visible as a writer. Um, and maintain so your platform. <laughs> exactly. Maintain my platform. Um, not only because I had just left New York and I felt like that was important, but also because it makes it easier to sell a book if you have a, a name and you're a known writer. And this year I've had to rejigger that and focus on the book more and purposely not freelance as much, including turning down work, which is super hard to do, um, so that I can do the book. You just have to set your own priorities and make yourself stick to them. So I try to make it fun for myself right now because I'm doing all this research and reading other people's work to come up with bigger ideas. I will do it while I'm out having rosé on a patio somewhere because I can read a book anywhere. I don't have to be trapped in my house. I can take myself somewhere fun. I can do it while I'm sitting down at the pool at my apartment, um, wherever is going to make me happy. And then I have to make sure that as well as doing my work. I'm carving time to be off. It's never really off though, because all the media I consume, I find comes back to me and somehow plays into some idea or work that I'm going to do. But that's the great thing about at Refinery, needing to know everything means needing to watch The Bachelorette. But that can feel like <laughs> downtime, you know, like it feels like a, it's not work but it is because knowing that helps me later on 
So yeah, that's kind of the great thing about working in entertainment in general is there are aspects of your job that you're always going to be either passionate about or they just don't feel like work (laughs) Um, because they're pleasurable. So it's a balance. I, I, I think of things as time off or time on and I try to do things that are just for me and I'm not banking them for work later as well as, you know, consuming all the things that I want to consume. Got it. It's funny that you mentioned that, like, what's work, what's not work when you talk about something like The Bachelor, right? Because it's something like, yeah, you should probably know about for your job at Refinery. But it's kind of just like a cheesy we like a cheesy way to like end the day, like just something to kind of chill out. It's funny, I find that is the hardest part for me to quantify in my work where like sometimes I'm looking at things and I mean as you can probably tell I read a lot of nonfiction books on Mm -hmm. productivity books on communication styles nutrition stuff all of that and I have to really kind of look at things sometimes and I'm like okay it's 6 30 7 o'clock at night is reading this for a half an hour while dinner is cooking is this work or is this play? And sometimes I have a really hard time. Like, what bucket do I put this in? Because I really enjoy it and geek out over this. But technically, well, I you know, I could probably you, lay off why, work. <laughs> why do you feel like you have to put it into one bucket or the other? Why you can't forget I was a CPA for like 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> Just let it be both. It's okay if you enjoy your work so much that you want to keep doing it and consider it pleasurable. I think that's ideal. That's what most people would want. Yes. And I, I recognize this is such a, you know, a first world entrepreneur work for yourself <laughs> kind of problem as I'm saying this. But I think sometimes it's ma- it becomes a function of managing my energy. You know, mm. like does reading this and not just like really shutting off for a bit and kind of just letting my brain like I need I think you and I probably share some habits where changes of scenery, diverse information, stuff that seems completely non-linear related to what we're trying to create or what we're trying to to work on. You know, for mm-hmm. you in terms of a book, for me, it might be around a workshop or a speech or something like that. Mm-hmm. I need to go away from the core of what I work on and I need to go connect dots in other places. Yes. Whether it be taking an art or a change of scenery, even sometimes just a change in weather, like going to Nashville recently and having it be hot felt yeah. great when it was like 48 and yucky and raining here, you know, outside <laughs> of New York. Like I need yeah. that to kind of make, otherwise the ideas don't come to me. It just, everything gets bottlenecked and icky. So I think that's where I have to be careful quantifying it. It's like, or really intentional about like, why am I reading this right now? Is it for ideas for something else like that's research or is this just kind of to add another aspect in a very disjointed kind of way? That totally makes sense. I do the same thing. You're right. Um, Do you, I, I do this. Do you carve out time for things that are like scheduled that are strictly for your pleasure or your relaxation. Like I do that with my mani-pedis and my 
uh, going out to dinner without taking a book with me or getting a massage, things that are, I am a hundred percent. I know this is not for work. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Whether it be a massage for me, I'm a really kinesthetic learner and I'm also a pretty verbal processor. So like I have to be really good about, and I work from home. So I always have to be really good about making sure that I have some social life in like conversation with people that are not clients or, (laughs) you know, networking type calls. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And then, and then also just like get up and move my body and go somewhere else. Yes. That's for me, like that's scheduling that hour walk with my dog every day. And I will listen to a podcast, but it's not always to some ends. I also like Alice Isn't Dead. That's my escapist podcast. Which one was it? Alice Isn't Dead. What is that one? Um, It's part of the Welcome to Night Vale universe. It's just, um, it's sort of a horror podcast, but more of a (laughs) David Lynch horror than, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's one woman who is in an apocalyptic alternate universe and she's a truck driver who's looking for her uh, girlfriend who disappeared and all of her weird encounters and the things that happen she narrates. Ooh, you are hitting a nerdy sweet spot for me. Anything that's (laughs) anything post-apocalyptic. I mean, I've seen Cherry 2000. Have you seen that? I've seen it more than once. The old shitty melanie griffith movie oh okay yeah if you need some brain chocolate there you go (laughs) noted but yeah i i like to mix it up but i also sometimes don't listen to anything and just that walk and it's in nature on a wooded trail where my dog i'm trying to control her and stop her from chasing rabbits or cats or whatever um it's nice it's a good free time for my brain so is that where you go or what you do when you're feeling spent? Is that helpful um, No, that's there? what I do to start the day. That's what I do. I take, go with her in the morning, usually from like 7 to 8. Got it. When you are feeling drained and spent, what do you do to revive yourself? This time of year, I swim. Something about just swimming back and forth in laps um, is cathartic to me. And when it's colder outside, I honestly don't know what to do with myself. I will go like binge something totally, totally brainless on Netflix. (laughs) It's so funny. The longer I do this show and the longer I see, like the more private clients that I see, how pervasive Netflix binging is in terms of self-care these days. (laughs) Well, it's a nice way to make it feel like you have your own little world and you're totally eschewing responsibility. Like you get the satisfaction of doing something just for you, but also being able to create a little cave where you feel safe to do it in. Yes. And I go full comfy throttle when I do it. Like I like blankets and (laughs) candles and like curtains closed and just like make my living room like a hovel. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And Courtney, I know this next question is probably a huge question for you. What's the most inspiring or useful book you've ever read? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is such a hard question. I mean, the most inspiring book was one that um, changed my point of view on the world. Things Fall Apart, and I cannot pronounce the author's name, but it is entirely, I read it in college for the first time and I reread it regularly. And it's just the story of an African man um, when colonial settlers come and what happens to his village. And I was, it just honestly was something, a point of view I'd never had thought about before. And just the way that their world falls apart um, when these Europeans come. And that is something I've tried to always take with me. Whenever you're insinuating yourself into someone else's culture, when you're marketing things to people, how are you thinking about it? What do you think their point of view is? When you're trying to tell people what they like, are you taking their point of view into account doing it? Like it fundamentally changed me as a person to read it. Um, it was really inspiring, but in a way that made me look at myself differently and certainly the world. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, I understand like boiling that question down. Books are like some of my best friends. So yeah, <laughs> I understand the gravity. To- there are really 10 different answers to that, but that one is probably the strong, like the strongest effect on my changing my point of view of the world. That's why I also call these questions the champagne questions, because it can change with like, you can have a glass of champagne on one day and it tastes one way, and you can have a glass of champagne on another day and it tastes a totally different way. And oh, that's clever. It just kind of <laughs> is what it is, right? Like every sip is going to be different. Every bubble is going to hit your mouth different. So it's, it, this doesn't have to be your answer now and forever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, noted. I won't criticize you 10 years, 10 years from now and go, oh, Courtney, can you believe she said this book? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think that will still be my answer to that. But if you ask me what my favorite album is, I mean, obviously the answer is going to change all the time. I'm afraid to, because I, I don't know that I could even answer that. so I won't put you on the spot for that one and Courtney you mentioned starting your day with the dog walk and getting outside and getting in nature is that your most impactful habit in the morning definitely because it sets up a series of actions for the day so it's Texas and it's usually warm out except for you know five or six days of the year (laughs) Um, so I walk her and even that early in the morning, I'm going to get a little bit sweaty. So I have to take a shower and then I have to have some coffee and, you know, something to eat. And then my day is happening. So I like that. It just starts the ball rolling. Cause once you do that, there are certain things after that you can't skip. It would be disgusting. <laughs> yes. So that gets you primed with all the basics. Like at that point, you're like, I'm showered, I'm breakfasted, life can happen now. I'm ready to do something now. Right. And especially working from home, um, that is helpful. It stops you from just sleeping in or not getting dressed until noon or any of the other pitfalls of trying to be a professional person in your own home. Yes. And what about on the, the second half of the day? 
is there a particularly impactful habit in your PM hours? And that can be, you know, as you sort of cut over from work to non-work or it can be before bed, but like what helps you really close out your day? Once again, it's my dog. I know that I am (laughs) done working for the day Um, between five and six. We wrap up and she gets to go to the dog park and see all of her dog friends. She lets me know when it's when she's ready to go outside as well. She starts insistent, you know, jumping on the couch or standing in front of me and staring at me between me and the door. Like, (laughs) let's let's go. And she wants to go. Yeah, she wants to go see her friends and then come home and eat her dinner. And she wants those things at a certain time. Um, So it helps keep me scheduled that she's so insistent. (laughs) That's fantastic. I love your dog like holds like what about half of your your structure as a as a self-employed <laughs> she woman starts the day and she she starts the day and she ends the day so that's awesome and Courtney these next few questions are a little bit different but I always like to get everyone's opinion on these questions and I ask them all the time like I can meet someone at a networking event and I'm like so how would you define being a modern woman oh boy Um, define being a modern woman to me that means honestly it doesn't mean anything Um, there's not that much difference between the modern woman and her predecessors other than the sense of control the modern woman has over her own life financially that's the main way that we've evolved to be honest and to say that someone's a modern woman because they earn a salary is you know not really very fair to women who choose to stay home um so i don't really think there is a difference between the modern woman and previous women we have more choices but i mean so do men (laughs) Men can stay home now, too. Or they can choose to get married or not get married, as can we. Um, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Every person is just the set of choices that they've made to end up where they've ended up. That's a great you know, point. In, in first world society, there are certainly people that yes. have more limited choices than us. But I don't. I don't think there is a modern woman or any one characteristic that all modern women have. Fair enough. Fair enough. I respect that opinion. And what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Um, I think the most important thing is intersectionality. I think everyone should be in agreement on that now that we have to stop Uh, from the point of view, myself, a privileged white woman, stop thinking about feminism or even the entire world in terms of what's happened to me and start thinking about it in terms of what can I do to help people who are not as fortunate and don't have as many options as me and what am I saying that might be, you know, super privileged and not thoughtful and what can I do to help add their voices to the conversation? What are... Things, and when I say things, I mean resources, whether that be books or podcasts, what's helped you get 
educated on intersectional feminism? To me, I purposely started following a lot more women of color on Twitter and seeing what their thoughts are and what their work is. Um, That opened up a whole new world of ideas to me. I'm a big Twitter user. So that was super helpful. And then things like listening to Two Dope Queens and some other podcasts that women of color do is also really insightful and helpful to open up my worldview. And it also just gives me an idea of what's going on in like different niches of culture, which I find to be super, super interesting. Like there's only so many times I can read someone's think piece about Ivanka Trump. I, we all have a thought on her now. I'm kind of tired of it. I'd rather hear about something less discussed. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Cause I think, I think sometimes people listening or like we want to be more educated. We want to be more in the know. We want to understand these different perspectives, but sometimes it's really overwhelming to figure out like what piece can we pick off? Like what can we start doing? Something else I think it's important to say is I follow a lot of um, women of color who are writers on Twitter, but I don't try to interject myself into their conversations. I just listen to what they have to say. And I think I would recommend that to everyone. (laughs) That's a great distinction. And I mean, I would say that that advice can relate to almost any scenario in life. Like, where can we come at something from a place of just observation and curiosity without feeling we need to make it all me, 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 me? Exactly. I try to understand better what their point of view is and that they don't, they already know what mine is. They don't need to hear it. So yeah, they've been beat over the head with it. And I always like to ask the inverse of that question in that, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? Um, I'd like to see them giving less of a shit about responding to people online in various forums who are just trying to troll them. Just ignore, like, you don't have to interact with every idiot. That's what I learned when my book came out. There were I was just going to say, this advice <laughs> seems like couched in experience. <laughs> there are a lot. Everybody has an opinion. And I was really scared about it, to be honest, because the idea of putting yourself out there. And there's a lot of like my personal stuff in that book, my personal life experiences and my opinions. And um, I knew that there was going to be a lot of judgment. And there was. And I realized not all of the judgment was actually about me. It was just that was people doing what I wanted them to do, which was to present their argument, you know, their point of view on something. And I didn't have to take all of it personally. And then there were people that were much more aggressive and, you know, were awful. Um, But for me, I just decided not to interact with those people. Like some, some reviews as well. I was just like, this is incorrect. You didn't write a review of my book. You wrote what you wished I'd written instead. So I'm glad you got paid for that. But no, that's if you want to, if you wanted that, you should write that book yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of, instead of kicking me, (laughs) go write the book. So yeah, people miss, there are a lot of men in particular on the internet who spend a lot of their time trying to aggravate other people. Just don't be one of the people they aggravate. Don't like, don't give them your time. 
How did you protect yourself from that? Um, I block people a lot. <laughs> when they're really aggressive, I very liberally block. Me and President Trump, we block them. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I also like just give people I when it was my book, it's a different kind of conversation because I very quickly came to the realization that I'd already had my say and my say was in print and it's in a book. So if they want to have their say following that, that's cool. There doesn't need to be a back and forth. Someone can just have their response to what you said, but I've already said my part. I don't need to respond again. You know, like you just let it go. So you were very able to graciously allow people like, go ahead, you can have the last word. Enjoy well, it. <laughs> yeah, you have to, though. Like, I can't respond to every person on Goodreads who has a negative opinion. I would seem insane. And that's, <laughs> that would be a lot of my time as well to, like, correct everyone on whatever. And you can't correct people's feelings. Like, if you didn't like something, then you don't like it. That's okay. Amazing to hear. Like, that's, it's really awesome that you were able to just kind of have thicker skin and just see it for what it was as opposed to letting it consume you. Yeah, I think once you're in um, an intense spotlight, you learn to do that. You'll find, I think, that most people who've written a book learn to do that. But a lot of people that write a column or just are on Twitter and get harassed aren't used to that kind of scrutiny. It's best to just let it go. Just let them say something. Or if they're really, like, if they're saying terrible things, if it's threatening to kill you or threatening you bodily harm, just block them. You don't have to see them. Great advice. Great advice. And, Courtney, what would you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? Hmm, I think the thing that you should most know is if you want to be more organized if you want if you have a goal in mind or you just feel like you're a disorganized person it's really easy to do but you have to commit to a schedule you might have to make it for yourself but you can do all of those things it's just a matter of resolve you can do anything that you want to do amen i couldn't i I couldn't agree with you a thousand percent more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think sometimes we we forget what's possible when we're stuck in the weeds of all of these other details and excuses. Definitely. I think just come up with a, ga a game plan. If you feel overwhelmed, then just write down all the things you have to do and you'll be surprised how quickly you start crossing them off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Courtney, I'm going to make sure that everyone has links to your book and Twitter and all of that amazing stuff. What's your preferred way to be contacted if women listening really want to know more about you or more about your work or connect with you? Definitely tweet me. You got it. I love Twitter. <laughs> I love Twitter. <laughs> Listen up, listeners. If you want to get a hold of Courtney, just tweet at her. And Courtney, this has been such an awesome conversation. And I mean, I feel like my head is still bubbling over with like 10,000 questions. But, <laughs> you know, you and I both recognize that 
if a podcast is more than an hour and a half, people will probably be like, I'm not listening to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm one of those people. <laughs> totally. We want to make sure you listen. So we'll, we'll, we'll cut to the chase. But thank you so much for being here. And hopefully on one of your trips to New York, we can all grab tea or coffee or, well, I guess if we have Miguel with us, a more adult beverage. Um, but anyways this has been amazing thank you so very much for being here and sharing your wisdom and sharing your experiences with everybody listening thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure This is Kara again. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all the links and resources and references mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. And just a reminder, new shows will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. But if remembering that is a pain in the ass, there are two things that you can do. One is subscribe to the show on iTunes and it'll automatically be delivered to you. Or you can sign up to get emails from me twice a month and I will remind you of what the latest podcast is so that you can just click from there and go have a listen. And you can sign up on the same website and at the bottom of most pages, you'll see a link that says get emails from me. And off we go. You'll be added to the VIP list known as the Vital Core list. And about twice a month, I'll remind you of what the latest podcast is and include some health and lifestyle tips and other events or going ons having to do with the Vital Core Salon. And as always, I want to give a huge merci beaucoup to my kick-ass producer and even more kick-ass husband, Craig Snyder. He helps make this show sound great and adds cool theme songs and generally just makes sure all the levels are neat and does a bunch of things with an application called Pro Tools that scares the hell out of me. So thank you, Craig for everything that you do. And I also want to give a shout out to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing my most excellent theme song and the high dials for performing it. It adds sonic pleasure that makes me excited when I get to review the show and the end product and hear that song kick in. And just, it, it just feels fun to me. So thank you to all the people behind the scenes who helped make this show. And as always, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down.